this yellow legal notepad that my father used to use um, for work. And she was writing a name over and over and over again. And you could even see these indents in the paper um, because she had been writing it in the same place over and over again. And it was Dorothy Soames, Dorothy Soames, Dorothy Soames. Hi, I'm Sylvia Beckerman. Join me today as I talk to an extraordinary woman who is changing the world by making a difference in her life and the lives of those around her. Hi, my name is Justine Cowan, and I'm excited to be here on Sylvia and Me to talk about my book, The Secret Life of Dorothy Soames. Justine, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, we're going to get into the book, which is a memoir. It's not fiction, um, although somebody reading it would say, oh, wow, this couldn't have happened, but it it is true. It's a true story. It's your story. It's your mom's story. Um, you're also an accomplished environmental attorney. We don't want to put that, you know, not, not say that. Um, but we're going to talk about the book and how it came about. Uh, you grew up in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, and your mom, Dorothy Soames, um, was not Dorothy Soames at that time. Right. Or her name was Eileen Thompson. The story that you knew from your mom, that you and your sister knew, was that your mom grew up from royal blood in England. Right. Um, Yet it took you a long time to find out what her secret was. In the meantime, growing up, you went through periods of when you were younger, you feared your mother. When you got a little bit older, you were angry at your mother. And then the third step was hating your mother. To the outside world, your mother had class. She dressed like she came from British royalty. Your dad was an American GI. What were some of the first things that you remember about your your mother? Well, I always knew that my mother was illegitimate. How did you and, know that? But and it was one of those things where in your childhood home, you know something and you have no memory of when and if it was told to you or whether or not you overheard it in a passing conversation but it was just a given in our household that my mother was illegitimate. And I think I knew what that, I'm not even sure if I always knew what that word meant. Um, but with that story, I was always told that she came from blue blood and that we had this aristocratic blood pulsing through our veins. Um, and I had no reason to doubt it because my mother was very charming. She had an upper crust, um, English accent. Um, she could play the piano and paint. And, and she really did fulfill my vision of what um, an upper crust uh, lady would be. Now, her actions in the house, because you say that as a young child, you feared her. What exactly did she do that made you afraid? And then just brought on the other emotions. 
it was really her unpredictability. And, you know, I've learned that if someone is very kind, but then you don't know when that's going to switch off and turn into some sort of violence or something like that, that that's, that actually creates more anxiety in you because of the unpredictable, the unpredictable nature of it. And, you know, I have memories of her, you know, picking up my dollhouse and, and throwing it across the room and crashing and, and her, you know, smashing the um, coffee table. It was a glass coffee table in the living room. And I remember her smashing it and it breaking into pieces and, um, and, but, you know, that didn't happen every day. Um, but I always knew that right below the surface that there was that potential um, for something unpredictable to happen. Now, in, in around ninth grade, you were sent off to boarding school. You, your father was an attorney and he was a, a he didn't have that personality that your mother had. You had a very good relationship with him. You had a loving relationship with him. Um, you asked your father why he allowed you to go off to boarding school because you did not want to when they were sending you. What did your father tell you? He told me it was to get me away from my mother. Now, you knew somehow that she was illegitimate. It was accepted by the family. You also never asked her about any of her family, your grandmother, your, you know, any brothers, any uncles, any cousins or anything. So, so I can understand where you would think that she was illegitimate. No knowledge of, of any family history. But your mother tried giving you clues. What was the first one? What specifically happened? Because I know your dad called you. You weren't living at home anymore. You were in California. Um, what happened when your dad asked you to come home? I was at college and he called and said, I, your mother was driving through the streets and I had to chase after her. And she was going to the hospital and, and I said, you know, she hurt. And he said, no. And he didn't give me any explanation, but he said, you have to come home. Um, I have to go to court and I need someone to look after her. And so I did, it was, I went, drove across the Bay bridge and, and went home um, to our home that was just South of San Francisco. And I found my mother in the dark. And I know it sounds like a scene out of like Hollywood Boulevard or something like that, um, but it, this is how it happened. I, I walked into my mother's room and she was sitting alone in the dark in her nightgown in bed um, with a notepad. And I still remember the notepad. It was this yellow legal notepad that my father used to use um, for work. And she was writing a name over and over and over again. And you could even see these indents in the paper um, because she had been writing it in the same place over and over again. And it was Dorothy Soames, Dorothy Soames, Dorothy Soames. Did you want to know why she was writing that? Did you ever ask her or were you at that point, you just couldn't care less? 
At that point, I couldn't care less. And I know I, I get a lot of surprise because it's so intriguing what happened that day and so unusual. But we are we all grow up in the household that we do, and that to us is normal. And for me, this was just another one of my mother's dramatic moments. Um, and so I did not pursue it. Um, and, you know, probably, I don't remember what I said exactly at that moment, um, but we did not ever discuss the name Dorothy Soames um, again. In fact, your mother sent you um, some writings that she did. She did. It was many years later. Um, I had already gone on. I was an attorney myself. And, um, and she sent me an envelope uh, that was filled with about, um, I don't know, 30, 40 pages of, of typed writing um, that told her story um, and uh, of, her, of her childhood and Dorothy Soames. You didn't read it. I did not read it. And again, very surprising, but I had wanted to know where my family came from most of my life. As a child, I had no grandparents. Um, my father's um, parents had died my, um, you know, well before I was born. Um, but I knew that it was an off-limits topic to talk about my mother's family, um, that you know, I would get in trouble if I ever even asked. Um, about her background. And so when I was, I must've been in my early thirties when she sent this um, to me and, you know, we'd had a pretty tumultuous relationship at that point. And so I did not want to read it. It felt manipulative to me. And I was like, why now? Um, you know, why when I'm off on my own and happy um, at last, does she want to drag me back into her past? Your mom passed away. How old were you when she passed? Um, I was about 50 years old. Okay. And she, she died from Alzheimer's. Yes. Um, your reaction, considering you had no love for your mom, you hated her, but what took place after she passed away? I was overcome with grief. Um, I mean, I was there at her bedside and when she died, I ran from the room. I could barely breathe. Um, and then, you know, when I went back home, um, I, I could, you know, I was exhausted, you know, for days and weeks, I would cry at the most inopportune moments. And I mean, I was shocked. I, I, I was convinced that when my mother died, I, I harbored so much anger towards her that I was convinced that when she died, the only thing I was going to feel was relief. You didn't. And, and that wasn't what happened. And so, um, where did you go with that? Well, I let it sit for a while um, and then just went on with my life. And then um, my husband and I went um, on a trip to um, Europe. Um, we had a honeymoon that didn't went a little awry. <laughs> we had some car accidents and we had a car accident, some illness. We had to cut it short. It was, um, 
almost comically bad. Um, and so we decided that we were going to make up for that and take a trip to Europe. And um, the subject of London came up and I knew that's where my mother was from. And I had never been and I'd never wanted to go. And I said, well, that's going to be fine. I'm going to go. It's not going to be any problem. And um, so we went and, you know, when we were wandering around London, all I could do was think about my mother. And, um, and so when I came home, I decided that I want to know about Dorothy Soames. And that's when I began my journey. That's when you found out that your mother was actually raised in the foundling, foundling home. Yes, yeah, she was raised. Yeah, Britain's Hospital for the Maintenance and Education of Exposed and Deserted Young Children. Yes, I know it's quite a mouthful, and they call it for short the Foundling Hospital. Yes. Um, and, you know, that's when I started what would be um, probably a two year journey. I'd go back and forth from London and I would, you know, learn the true story of everything that happened. Um, to my mother and to thousands of other children um, who were raised at the Foundling Hospital. And the Foundling Home is almost the opposite of what we think of when an unwed mother, usually the children go up for adoption and the unwed mother does service at at the home or is put out to do service for other families. This was very different. Can you tell us what exactly this horrific institution, which was started back in the 18th century? Right, right. It was started when, um, the context is that in the 1700s, illegitimacy was really worse than anything. And that an illegitimate child was considered to have bad blood. Um, running through their veins, and that there was something actually wrong with them. And they were dehumanized to the point that you would see babies in the gutter um, because a woman had, you know, cast it aside, um, most likely out of desperation um, because she would have nowhere else to turn. And this man named Thomas Coram um, decided he wanted to do something about that. And he helped start this institution. The prejudice against illegitimate children was so strong that there was no benevolence there. They didn't want to, you know, at least many of the um, members of British society. Um, and so they, um, he made basically a devil's bargain. He said, please take care of these children. Um, but in return, uh, they will become servants um, for Britain's ruling class. And, um, and so a foundling would be raised for one purpose, and that would be to serve Britain. And you found out that your grandmother had become pregnant and, um, she wound up going over, giving the baby, your mother to the foundling, but it wasn't so easy for a woman to even be accepted by this horrific institution. What were the, what, were the um, what was the vetting process that someone like your grandmother had to go through? It was, it was amazing for me to find this out when I was doing my research that 
um, the institution was so patriarchal that um, it had come up with two purposes, not just to put this child to work, but also to return this fallen woman to her station in life. Um, so the hope was that if you know she became pregnant with for whatever reason, um, that if the child was given up and kept a secret, that she would be able to return to society and live um, you know, a, a virtuous life. Now, because of that, they had to do a little bit of evaluation of whether or not that woman could be returned to her station in life. Had she become so tainted and unvirtuous that their efforts would, would be in vain? And so they would have to go, the women who wanted to give up their child would have to go through this process where they would be vetted to see if they were virtuous. And so for my grandmother, um, she had to do an application and then um, she had an interview with a panel of men who would ask her various questions. And then they actually got letters from who else, <laughs> but the men in her life. Um, to decide whether or not she was virtuous enough. So her brother, her pastor, and her doctor um, sent letters um, discussing whether or not she was virtuous enough and whether or not this little lapse um, would be repeated. And I've seen these letters where they, they opine on this woman who was my grandmother's virtue, you know, how virtuous she was, you know, with, with ease. And then they even sent an investigator out to talk with them. And, and you know, they did all of this. And at the end, they found that she was sufficiently virtuous for them to take her child um, and raise it in this institution to be a servant. And your mom was there until she was 12. For the first five years, these children are put with a foster family. And then at the age of five, they were ripped from this foster family. And right. your mother lived at the foundling until she was 12. Yes. And when the, the fostering, I mean, it almost sounds nice. <laughs> and, and some children were able to have good foster parents. My, my mother was not one of those. Um, but the cruelty of it is that even if they were loved by their foster family or not, at the age of five, they would be taken to the foundling hospital institution. And usually with no notice whatsoever. Um, I mean, I have read stories and through my research that you know, one child was standing by the side of the road, picking some flowers, and then he was put on a bus and they said, oh, go over to that bus, walked over the bus. And that was the last he ever saw of his family. He was never even told that he was leaving that day. Um, and so it was just this, just ripped. When you use the word ripped, it was really, they were ripped from this family. And when they were, the first day when they were in the institution, they would have their heads shorn, their clothing taken away. They would be bathed and scrubbed in a bathtub with other children, you know, two or three at a time. Um, and then, you know, that night they might have even been beaten or, you know, as, as if they were being inducted into prison um, at the age of five. Your mother actually was in, in some ways, and I know this sounds lucky to be out of there at the age of 12. It was during the war and your grandmother um, fought to have her um, be with her. What stories have you found out about when your mother went and lived with her mother, your grandmother, until she left? 
was oh, she um, in a better? I mean, I'm sure she was in a better situation because she wasn't in the institution. But what was her life like? Did you find out through your research? Um, I I did find out, interestingly enough, though, only after the hardcover of the book had been published, and I received a very mysterious phone call um, from someone that knew my mother and had read about it in the New York Times. Um, now, you know, just to step back a little bit. Um, is that, you know, the time between she was five and 12, you know, my mother was brutally, she was beaten. Um, you know, she was thrown in a pool um, by her gym teacher who was notoriously vicious. Um, and actually, um, because she'd spoken out of turn, she'd said something in line and, you know, you're supposed to be quiet all the time and actually shoved her under the um, water with a stick while teachers mother- watched on. As and your mother it, couldn't it, swim. Right. She couldn't swim and watched on entertainment. This was entertainment for the teachers. And so, you know, and she was locked in closets. And so, um, and then at, while all of this was going on, my grandmother was trying to get my mother back. And I went to the archives in London and held piles of letters um, that my grandmother wrote asking about her daughter. Um, every, almost every month she would ask, you know, how's my daughter? How's my daughter? How's my little girl? Then she'd be like, can I have my daughter back? And they would say no. Um, and she tried and tried and tried. And so, um, in, when my mother was 12, she planned a daring escape, um, during World War II. I mean, in the middle of the battle of Britain, she, she, um, she escaped. Um, and that was the Fowling Hospital. Was, I, I think that they decided she would not make a very good servant. And so um, they finally succumbed and said, okay, um, you know, to my grandmother, Lena was her name, you can have your daughter back. And when I first wrote the book, I did not know what happened. Um, my mother never spoke of it. She didn't write it in her writings. Um, I could find no evidence of it whatsoever. Um, but then I received a phone call um, from someone who knew my mother and she had spoken to this woman who was also a family about what had happened. And I think that I dreamed that the reunion was going to be joyful. And, and I assumed that the, the reunion was joyful, but then reality sets in and my mother was so damaged at this point. Um, you know, she, she had lived her entire childhood with no love and only brutality. And then suddenly at the age of 12, she's reunited with her mother. Society had not changed though. And so my grandmother had to keep her a secret yet again. She was not allowed to go to school and she had to pretend that her mother was not her mother. Um, and that, you know, her parents, my mother's parents had died in the war and that she was an orphan to be raised there. So she finally got her mother, but she had to lie about it. And, um, you know, I don't know the relationship between the two. I do know that it must have been fractured and it eventually, they became estranged. I can only assume because I discovered during my research that my grandmother was alive during my lifetime. But I never knew that. 
Um, and I still remember this day when my mother was, cr- I found her crying um, when I was, I think, I don't know how old I was, maybe eight or nine. And, um, and I put all the pieces together and that was when her mother died. Um, but I didn't even know, I didn't even know that my grandmother walked the planet with me. Um, you know, so I can only assume that all the trauma had really broken that relationship, um, before it ever had a chance to begin. Your mother came to the United States. Your grandmother gave her 3,000 pounds. Um, what, what was your mother looking for? Did she, because as far as you and your sister knew, she was from royalty. Right. How did your, do you have any idea how your mother was able to, she was totally broken. She'd never really known uh, any affection. She was damaged when she came to the, to the U.S. Um, you've said that her, one of the things that she was wanted was she wanted to marry an American GI. Yes. How was she able to take what she'd gone through and have a personality on the outside that gave off this vibe of, you know, British aristocracy? Well, my mother was very smart and talented. And I can only assume that she created this persona. I spent a lot of time talking with foundlings um, and she, her accent was different than that of other foundlings. So I'm assuming that she rehearsed and that she created um, this um, persona. And, um, and it was very interesting because, you know, my mother was very um, snobby and she would look her, you know, she would look down at anyone who, um, you know, she ruffian. I remember the word ruffian. Oh, that's a ruffian. Um, as someone who she used the word peasant and, you know, all sorts of words that were um, very derogatory towards those of the lower of lower classes and that type of thing. And so I think that she just created this persona um, because she felt more comfortable going through life that way. After discovering all this about your mom, in fact, I believe you went to the Fowling Museum and noticed some of the similarities in the rooms in your house. Right, right. Um, so after learning all this, growing up with no love bound and this hatred you had for your mother, did you start to have different feelings towards her? I mean, it's, it had to be so confusing. Spending was, your whole and, life. Right. Yes. And I mean, and it's a question that a lot of us grapple with is, and that I tried to look at is, what do you do when society tells you that you should feel a certain way about somebody and that you should love your mother, you should love your father, or, you know, I mean, every, I, I feel that everybody has somebody in their life that they're told they should feel a certain way about, but they don't. Um, and add on the layer of that, what do you do when you find out that you don't have those feelings for that person? And it's because something really terrible happened to them. 
in their lives before, you know, perhaps maybe before you were ever born. Like, how do you, how do you process that? And, um, you know, my feelings did change and I, the anger subsided. Um, it was a little redirected. Um, I'm not very happy with the foundling hospital. And, you know, the, there was, these, it was this patriarchal system of these um, imperious men who decided how thousands of children were going to be raised and how, and judged these women. By the way, um, in case you haven't noticed, the men who may have participated, um, who definitely participated in the, um, in uh, bringing these children to the world, they were not punished in any way. Um, They were protected. um, And, you know, so this child was, you know, kept secret so they would never even have to know. Um, And so I realized that a lot of my anger was at this whole system that had, you know, done so much damage to really thousands of people. In fact, I know that one of the things that you've said is that it was almost, you know, this journey that you've been on, an emotional journey, uh, and sharing it, it, there was a gift that came out of that. And that is other people having had an experience, you know, meeting other women like your mom, who knew your mother and other children of foundling parents or children who grew up with troubled, damaged parents who did not grow up with a love for their parents. Right. And, and one of those gifts that I got was that, you know, I've learned that a lot of times when there's a child in a dysfunctional family, um, that the child tends to blame themselves. And I know that because um, that's what I did. <laughs> um, and, you know, you internalize it, like you hear about it, you know, if someone gets divorced and the child blames himself. I mean, it just tends to happen. And um, it allowed me to at least um, move, move a little bit farther along in understanding that, you know, it wasn't my fault, that a lot of what had happened to my family, um, you know, the, in a sense, our fate had been sealed decades, if not centuries before um, when this institution was created Um, and this entire society had decided how to deal with illegitimacy in a way that was going to have repercussions for generations. Generations. In fact, you'd love to have the British government issue an apology. I would. Um, There have been apologies um, issued um, by the British government for other programs that have done harm to um, British children. Um, one that was called the Home Program, where they sent children abroad to be, um, you know, poor children and orphan children abroad to be um, servants and that type of thing. Um, there have been apologies to um, the way that Indigenous children have been treated around the world. And I mean, there's lots of examples of it. Um, the Magdalene laundries in Ireland. They received an apology. So my question is, why have the foundlings not received an apology um, from the British government for what they have gone through? And, you know, in this year, actually, the group of, of former foundlings, they have an association where they gather. They're, they're disbanding this year. 
and because they're starting to die off. And um, the time is right uh, for the government to issue an apology. And I know they want one because I have spoken to many families through my, um, my journey that have said to me, why won't they just apologize to us? Um, and so it won't erase the past, but maybe it will be a salve for some of the wounds that still exist. Oh, throughout all this, you were able to find love and happiness. You're married. Yes. Patrick, your husband. Yes. Unfortunately, also, as you said, you never thought you would be a good mom because of the experience you had. Since then, I've heard you say something different that you would have made a good mom. Um, I, I do. I think I would have. And, um, I, you know, I've been really fortunate that my um, husband has a family with, uh, so that I have nieces and nephews and I'm able to dote on them and spend time with them. So um, I feel really fortunate that I've been able to develop those kind of relationships with younger people. So there's one and find a wonderful and find a wonderful family. So listen, yeah, what you, what you, your mom and generations went through for you to be able to put the pieces of those breadcrumbs that your mother somehow tried, she couldn't talk about it, but she left you. Um, you know, people get scarred for on lesser things. Uh, so to be able to say that you found love and you have nieces and nephews and, and, and that's what more could you ask in the situation that, that you were in, yeah, you were right. able to come out as loving yourself and knowing, you know, finding this. I asked you when we first started, if you would read something from your book towards the end, because I think it's a great way to kind of bring your story and your mom together. So okay. if you would. Sure. And um, this, this was just after my mother had died. Um, I, was, I was talking about um, right after that, um, about how um, the amount of grief that I felt, um, and this was me circling back to reflect on that. Now I understand why I grieved her death so intently, why pain coursed through my body, leaving me exhausted and frail those weeks after she closed her eyes for the last time. I mourned not the loss of what I once had, but what had been taken from me before I drew my first breath or took my first steps. It is lonely to have no love for one's mother. While I'd hoped that my feelings would change, love cannot be forced or conjured up. Perhaps she was not the only one with wounds too deep to heal. But in my quest to learn about my mother's past, I realized that I had come to know somebody special, someone I wanted to hold, to comfort and protect. That person was a girl with a smattering of freckles and silky brown hair feisty and courageous and improbably full of dreams. I had grown to love that little girl 
Her name was Dorothy Sums. Stane, where can people find out more about you? Um, well, I have a website at justinecowan.com and um, the book is available at, uh, you know, all major retailers. And, um, and I also love doing uh, virtual book, book club drop-ins. That's been a really incredible experience as I hear about how the book resonates with people. I've done them in Denmark and New Zealand and <laughs> all over the country. So um, I will do more in New Zealand, but they're a little early in the morning. So <laughs> I do like them to be in the Eastern Standard Time. <laughs> Don't blame you. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, it could not have been easy, uh, a huge journey. And as you said, the gift is that others have, have contacted you. And I'm sure in, in, in a huge way, you've helped so many. So thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining me today. If you liked what you heard, please share it with another person you think would be interested. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. This has been a Life of Prey production.